It's so nice out there. From sunny Mexican markets to sleepy Greek waves. And when you go as an Expedia member, you save more on the things that matter. Expedia. Made to travel. Terms apply. See site for details. Alex Carell is one of over 70,000 Google Career Certificate graduates. The Google Career Certificate program completely changed the trajectory of my life. I've always been interested in computers, but I never thought I could turn this into a career. Anytime I got a little break, I'd just pop open the course on my phone. That allowed me to have that path into a career that I'm passionate about. Train online for in-demand jobs in IT, UX design, data analytics, project management, and more. Visit grow.google slash certificates. Throw a little bit, a little bit. You don't oh, do that enough, do you? No, I don't. You gotta I don't. warm up. Yeah, no. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta, you know, ocelots have oddly shaped feet, you know, to get kind of get ready for it. Me, may mommy, move. Exactly. Right. <laughs> the tip of the tongue, the teeth, the lips, the tip of the tongue, the teeth, the lips. Oh <laughs> uh, well, guys, welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. We welcome. hang out. We're we hanging out. Hang out. Have a good time. Yeah. We have a good you. interview for you today. Oh man. Yes. We just recorded it. You guys are going to love our interview with Austin Orr, who works for TPWD and is a certified casting instructor. Yeah. And we talked to him for a long time we did. about all kinds of fun stuff, specifically fish shocking, little teaser. Yeah, so a little bit longer of an interview for, for you guys, but man, we just kind of fell right into it, man. I could have talked to him. Yeah, for we could have talked for like three hours to yeah. him. But you know what? I'm just going to point out how cool I think it is that TPWD employees, we've had three, two current, one former, come on our podcast in the last couple weeks, yep. and how willing they are to talk to us about what they do. Man, one so future. open, you know? <laughs> one future. <laughs> <laughs> one future. <laughs> I'm just going to be rallying crying. But yeah, no, it was a great interview. So I enjoy it. A yeah, and I appreciate TPWD being so open. Yeah. And they can come on and talk to us about this stuff. And there's no restrictions, basically. Yeah. Um, Are there any fish you guys wish they would stock in Texas? Oh. No. I, I mean, it, you have, like, those pines, Scott, like, <laughs> yeah, let's uh, stock some, like, GTs or something, but right, right. that's that's not what the ecosystem holds, and so I'm okay, going to say no. A fish that you think the ecosystem could potentially hold, you know? You know what? Okay, let's take out trout and okay. just move straight to steelhead. Like, if we're just putting, like, trout-like fish in the quad, straight let's to cut out the middleman go and go... Could you not put them in some of those high, like, mountain desert areas? Out in West Texas? Well, actually, we haven't oh. talked about this before. There is a wild population of trout in the Guadalupe Mountains uh, in way West Texas. Is there really? There is. I would, and you saying that just got me thinking about this, but there was a time when I was like super interested in this, but in Guadalupe Mountains, there is a wild population, I believe, of rainbow trout. Mm historically they were cutthroats but when you know we went stalking crazy with the rainbows across the u.s they got out competed but now it's a wild population of rainbow trout in texas and i don't you can't fish for them 
Wait, why? They're so sensitive out in that area. Wait, they need to grow. Oh, wait, so like you can't because they're difficult or you can't legally? Legally. Okay. It's my understanding that you cannot fish for them. Gotcha. But what I'll do is I'll do some more research on this and pull myself up to date again on this and we can talk about it. Maybe we'll look at them. What would be really interesting if there was an expert on the topic, like a TPWD employee (laughs) who would be willing, who knows a lot about them and would be willing to talk to us about it, would be very interesting. That would be really cool. Uh, but I, do you guys think that peacock bass could live in Texas? I think they could. I bet they could. Oh, I yeah. definitely. I they bet could. they could. Is that definitely your fish? Re- oh yeah. Definitely if they around, could, like, if they Houston could. area, right? I just have mixed feelings. Oh, I'm yeah. like, oh, peacock bass would be cool, but then I'm like, you know, we already know what how much invasives tear up our ecosystem. I know. I know. It wouldn't like I'm not going to go get one and bring it over here. Yeah, we I and mean, we should not. We should not even be talking about it on our podcast, giving people dumb <laughs> ideas on our podcast. Don't bring peacock bass to Texas, guys. But, but I know in cool. Florida they've exploded, and they're invasive in Florida as well. Correct? Yeah, like that's how they started. They're Brazil from Brazil, right. Amazon they, tributaries. I they're think. just a big cichlid. They are a cichlid, right? Yeah, it's my understanding they're a cichlid. Yeah, it's my understanding. I keep saying that. Like I need to. I like, to my understanding. Like, it, it, to my it, knowledge. To my knowledge. <laughs> as long as I've, like, worked in fly fishing, like, I spent five years working in the fly fishing industry, you know, you get all this knowledge, and it's packed in there, and then you, like, take a year away, and, you kind of and you're like, ugh. I'm pretty sure they're a cichlid. <laughs> Is that yeah, the true fact? <laughs> that's that the true fact, or, <laughs> or am I fact. remembering incorrectly? Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. So, man, it sounds like we have all had, like, crazy weeks yeah dude this like today like this week for me has been bananas Same my, my past two weeks have been almost a blur yeah yeah it, it's literally like i can't get enough rest i can't do the things that i need to do i feel like i'm constantly going yeah. and all this other stuff Maybe i've been we- waking up consistently at like four thirty in the mornings and I'm not going to bed until like ten something at night. Maybe next week's podcast we can talk about how do we relax? Healthy habits. Healthy habits. <laughs> Healthy habits. Healthy habits. How do we relax? Yeah. How do we recuperate after a yeah. long time? I like that. Uh, no, same here. I mean, I had a two and a half month long vacation, and then it's like all of a sudden I got to wake up early every day, be on my feet all day. It's just yeah. like man, it's taking well, it out of me. And our our house flooded. That, and that is we like, are in yeah. the prime of that right now with them pulling the floors up. Yeah, man. And we have to live in a hotel right now. How long are you guys there for? Uh, we are there until what we decided to do because we're doing our anniversary trip on September, leaving September 1st. You guys are going trip. west? We're going to Terlingua. That's right. We're staying in an inflatable, clear ceiling dome they're cool i looked them up to lingua oh, out there west texas yeah. big ben area yeah it's Lingua. gorgeous yeah i, know. It, I just i, I, love I, west I texas. honestly i loved texas before that i thought it was a beautiful state but then when i went to big ben and actually drove through like yeah. Tolingua and that area there's something about i was it, like man. holy sh- that's <laughs> it amazing it, no i i'm right there with you like what if there was just a little bit more not to do but like just far as like being able to civilization care. a little yeah, bit. I would I can move. And I'm not meaning civilization market. as like having bowling alleys and movie theaters. Right. I mean 
A grocery store every once in a while would be nice. <laughs> right. Things or don't a close gas it. station. <laughs> yeah. That's my only advice is if you see a gas station, once you get out there, get it. Fill up. Fill up every time. Because every, t- every single if time. If you miss it, there might be a chance that you do not get another one for That's a while. That's how Kendall and I were when we were uh, in the middle of Wyoming driving through who knows what. You know, because we took the back roads because it was like 30 minutes shorter. And we were like, hey, every time we see a gas station, we're getting it. We never went under a half tank, so we're good. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, would, I would say that should be your plan. Yeah. If, yeah. You get to, if you get to half a tank and you don't see a gas station on the horizon. You start freaking out. You need to start a little bit worried. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we're excited. We're going to stay in the dome for a couple of days. And then I was looking at, like, there's. Oh, some- a clear sizzling dome, too. Yeah. The, yeah. the stars out there. Are incredible. Yes. But my only thing, though, is if you're in there during the day, are you just going to, like, bake, like, under a magnifying glass? They actually have uh, awnings that you can pull over it for shade. Oh. And they're air-conditioned. Oh. Well, then, hey, you know what? So. That's perfect. And this is going to be, like, a very reminiscent anniversary because we got engaged at Davis Mountains. In a fishbowl? No. Uh, <laughs> at, the, at the McDonald Observatory. That's right. <laughs> At the McDonald's Observatory? At McDonald's Observatory. <laughs> got a Big like Mac. like a play place. Got a Big Mac and then went and looked through some telescopes. It was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was a real legit telescope. The one with just like a plexiglass on the front <laughs> and back end. You just look at a kaleidoscope. <laughs> just looking at Grimace in a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> it's still in one X. <laughs> Uh, the hamburglers there trying to get your <laughs> your space dried food. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so we're staying in a hotel until we leave for there because it's going to take them three days to tear out a floor. Okay, and it's going to take them about five days to relay the new floor. Oh guys! I'm so sorry. we just like hotel until then, and then we're going to be gone. We're just like, if you guys can get it done between now and when we get back from our anniversary trip, cool. We'll be we'll be good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you went to an expo I did. this weekend, right? Last minute. So, actually, it, it, I'll tell the long story a little bit. So, I was cleaning out my truck, and a guy who lives in the same apartment complex as me was parked just over here. Listeners can't see it, but I was showing you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was cleaning my truck, and he comes over and starts talking to me, and he's like, hey, how you doing? Da-da-da-da-da. My name's... XYZ. I don't want to out him. Um, I was like, hey, how, how are you doing? Da 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 da. We kind of got to talking. He's like, da 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 da. Yeah, I say that a lot when I'm trying to like, it's my ellipsis. Da-da-da-da-da. And, and uh, he, he, he was talking about hunting and stuff and he asked about Hatch. He's like, I figured that was yours. Is that a, a tracking collar or what? And I'm like, yeah, it's just a normal uh, like electroshock uh, Garmin. Uh, nothing fancy he's like i figured he's like so do you do you duck hunt with him i said not really duck hunt with him anyway i'm getting off subject met this guy seems like a really cool dude about our age and whatnot he's actually seen us podcasting before so he started asking about that because it was the episode where we had grandma on and we actually had the video recording going oh yeah yeah he's like i figured that's what y'all were doing he asked about it a little bit i don't know if he started listening or not um, we should have him on. I, I've, I've thought about it. I just don't know him that well enough yet. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, not quite a podcast relationship yet. Right. Cause I mean, I don't know if it's just like he occasionally does it. <laughs> I know he has a, a lease or something out in yeah. Kerrville 
based off of our talks. Found that out. (laughs) 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 Um, And so that was kind of like a short conversation. And then this past Saturday, I was, again, cleaning out my truck and whatnot. And he comes up to me, and he, his wife was up behind him, and I introduced myself to her, and she introduces herself to me, and I'm talking to this guy, and he gives me two tickets to the Texas uh, Trophy Hunters Association's expo that they had here in San Antonio. Oh, nice. And he asked, do you know what it is? And I was like, yeah, I've actually thought about going a few times, uh, never made it a true priority um and he gave me these these two tickets he's like well we went today and they gave us these so if you're interested you can have them and i was like yeah i'm interested i'll take them off of you and so sunday i went and had breakfast with cynthia's family and whatnot and then her and i went down to the expo and Killed a few hours what was the coolest thing you saw there that you're like mind-blowing Honestly, there's these t- these guys from uh, Louisiana, and they had all these, like, spice packs and stuff that you put together, and they were making, like, different stews, soups, and gumbos with them and whatnot, and they'd give samples, and they were just trying to sell their spice packs. But I got, I ended up walking out there with... Uh, $100 later. No, it was only like 50. Uh, <laughs> with like four packs of the gumbo mix and then two of the chilies and stuff. Because it was really good. And I'm super excited to use them this year. Yeah, that's cool. I went last year. It's uh, it's pretty neat. I, the, were the guys there who would like do like the 3D picture of your mount and they create a new one? Like a... Like a a 3D printed one of it? No, right but there? there were a few, like, taxidermists and stuff. Okay. There's a bunch of outfitters. I talked to the Delta Waterfowl guy. I mean, I went there pretty much. I just had ducks on the brain when I went there, so all I was looking for was waterfowl stuff. So a lot of the stuff I kind of just, like, glanced over because it was interesting, but, but not what, you're not what I was looking for. Was this a big expo? It's a good size one. At least I last think year normally was. they are. I went on a Sunday, which is normally the smallest day uh, for any expos, and they still had a pretty good little crowd there. Uh, it was down at the Freeman Coliseum, and they took up two big rooms full of stuff. So I wouldn't say it was small, but it wasn't like huge. Mm-hmm. It's much bigger than Trout Fest. And I would say that it was bigger than uh, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival, admittedly, last year said that it was smaller than years past. Gotcha. Yep. And that the Texas one is smaller than the one up in Virginia. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we're going to get right into our interview with Austin Orr. Yep. And we hope you enjoy it. We are happy to have Austin or join us uh, for the podcast. Austin, you work for Texas Parks and Wildlife with the Hatchery Department, and you're also a certified casting instructor? Yeah, that's right. I do work for Texas Parks and Wildlife. I'm in the management branch, which is uh, in direct uh, partnership with the Hatchery Branch. Okay. And uh, the Hatchery Branch produces the fish, and the management branch stocks them. So it's it's all part of the same team. And then you're right, I was, I'm a certified casting instructor through Fly Fishers International. 
Okay, so let's start with uh, the TPWD side with the hatchery. Um, you said, so you're on the management side, which is the stocking. So would you kind of walk us through what your day-to-day looks like working for Texas Parks and Wildlife? Yeah, absolutely. So right now it's late summer. It's obviously super hot outside. Um, vegetation in our lakes and rivers is at kind of a high point. It's at a peak. So if you've been down to your local lake or creek recently, you're much more likely to see vegetation in the water now than you would say in February or in the colder months. So we take this opportunity to do a bunch of vegetation surveys. So throughout the late summer time, we're out on various lakes and um, in our jurisdiction. For my jurisdiction, it's in the Austin area. So uh, lakes like Canyon, Travis, Buchanan. Um, we are out there looking for vegetation. We're trying to identify what species it is and how much of it is out there. And we track it all using GPS mapping software. We transfer that into a software program and we build vegetation maps off of that information. That way we can compare from year to year over time what the vegetation looks like. Okay, that's really interesting. So you guys are mapping how much vegetation growth there is during the summer and to see how it changes. That's correct. And then what do you guys do with that information? If you're seeing a huge change from one year to another, maybe way more vegetation, that might show you something about this lake. How are you guys putting that information to use? Well, for instance... um, just just to circle back to the, the huge change, that doesn't typically happen. Okay. So year to year, there's typically very little change over time. But if there were a large swing, say, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of um, what people call lily pads, we call American lotus. Um, if, if there was a whole bunch of those that, for instance, disappeared in some big cove where they used to be, we would suspect that perhaps something had happened to them specifically, or we would know that maybe there was an inflow of from a small creek that might have herbicide in it or sewage or something like that. We use these sort of environmental factors that exist uh, to kind of point us in the direction of things that are maybe going wrong out in our lakes and rivers. Okay. So, um, Austin, I have a question real quick. Um, yeah, go ahead. And you may not know anything about this, but like the green algae bloom that's always like on people's minds, you know, about like dogs drinking it and getting sick and stuff. Do you know anything about that? I know a little bit about it. That's a little bit outside my wheelhouse. Gotcha. But what I can tell you is that it is uh, sort of an ongoing problem and um, you don't have to be an expert in it to notice that it's uh, a little bit more of a problem, it seems like, in recent years compared to, to uh, further back in your memory. Part yeah. of that is that we just have a lot more people walking dogs downtown and areas where we've got uh, potential for more stagnant water formation, if that makes sense. It does. So, you know, 20 years ago, it was much less popular to walk your dog or uh, uh, go for a walk at all down near the stagnant creek that ran through the nasty wood belt, right? That was kind Mm -hmm. of not even really downtown. But now all these beautiful bike trails that we've opened up uh, have direct access to that water. So it's just kind of a a chicken and egg type of problem. So has it always been a problem or is it showing itself to be a problem now because we're actually coming into contact with that? 
Mm. Uh, I will say that as things heat up, um, whether you're talking about building more concrete and asphalt in a city or you're talking about the climate change in general, um, we will probably see more algal blooms similar to that. Okay. Huh. Thank you. Yeah, because I, I was interested. Because like you said, I just hadn't heard anything about that, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I feel like the last four or five years, it's like that's all people talk about during the summer, you know. And I think, too, yeah, it seems like a lot of other conversations that we've had recently with, uh, and you may not know about this, Austin, but we talked about the whole uh, SpaceX thing and a lot of other problems I think are being highlighted more uh, because people have more direct access on social media right. and the information is more readily, readily available as well. Definitely. That's an excellent point. Yeah. So right now you're doing the uh, mapping of vegetation. What does it look like? Uh, what time of year are you guys doing the majority of the stockings and what does that look like for you? Sure. Um, so just kind of to give you a, uh, overlook of what the year looks like for us, kind of our seasons, if you will. So essentially when the water's warm, we're doing uh, more vegetation and habitat type surveys. When the water's cold, we're doing more fish, direct fish surveys. We're looking at doing things like electrofishing or putting in gill nets, hoop nets, trap nets, which are all targeted at different fish in different uh, areas of the water column, if you will. And then stocking consumes most of our springtime. So as most people are aware, in, in our warm water fisheries, uh, most of the spawning occurs in the spring. People are very familiar with March, April timeframe kind of being the bass spawn and then catfish come in right after them. And for TPWD, we also worry about uh, the maronids. So that means white bass and striped bass. And a lot of our hatchery activity goes towards creating either more striped bass or more hybrid striped bass, which if uh, you've been out on some of our lakes and had the pleasure of catching them, you know, they're very strong, very fun fish to catch. And then right after, so it, it kind of goes, the white bass go first um, and then largemouth bass and catfish are kind of right there together after that. Okay. And that's kind of how you guys kick off your uh, stocking season. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, like, who can forget the trout? Right. So we don't raise the trout in Texas, but we do stock um, thousands and thousands of rainbow trout every year. Okay. Where are those trout raised actually? They come from Missouri, I believe. Okay. And they drive them all the way down. I know that they, they basically almost freeze them, keep it, the water real cold when they... They truck them. I think I've heard that. I may be wrong about that. Honestly, I don't know anything about it, but it would make sense from a biological standpoint to keep them very kind of lethargic almost mm -hmm. and to keep them from uh, getting all agitated when the with the bumpiness of that long drive. So uh, I have a on the electroshocking. I think that's always been super interesting to me. How exactly does that work? Um, is there any harm to the fish when that's done? And... Uh, what are some of the more interesting fish or surprising fish that you guys have seen when you do your electroshocking? Sure. So electrofishing is what it sounds like, right? It's we take electricity, we run it into the water, and it shocks the fish. Now, that sounds a little barbaric. Um, 
we are limited in our ability to interact with the fish. Uh, so this is actually one of the better methods that we have for counting bass and the food that bass eat specifically. So sunfish and shad and bass are all good candidates to be shocked because of their behavior, because of where they hang out in the water column. And uh, they like to stay in kind of shallow water. You are usually not shocking very deep water when we're talking about um, these sorts of uh, sampling techniques. So when we're, when we're able to use a, a shock boat, what we're doing is we are literally using a generator on the boat to, and we are controlling that energy through what's called a shock box. Using a shock box, we are able to control the flow of energy from the generator into, there are um, four wires essentially on each side of the front of the boat that kind of dangle into the water and are held out on booms away from the bow. And then the boat hull itself connects the circuit. So the hull, the aluminum hull of the boat connects to these uh, leads that are dangling in the water. And that is what makes the circuit connect and the electricity flow into the water. So that's how you guys so, create your area. So it doesn't just kind of just keep going. That's right. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I, yeah. I never would have guessed that. I know. <laughs> that's so cool. I, it's always interesting when I hear about it and I'm like, and it's even more interesting now that you start talking about it. For sure. so, so what are some of the cool fish or things that you guys have shocked up that was like, whoa, I was not expecting that, or whoa, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a state record fish <laughs> that no one knows about, and we're not asking for spots, but... Right, right. I mean, I mean, but if I told you, it'd be okay, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I do want to address, like, how the electricity impacts the fish oh, real quick. Oh, absolutely. It, it is, it is something that, that people are concerned about. And trust me, we are very concerned about it as well. Um, so from a, a personal standpoint, I like electrofishing for two reasons. One, it's very effective. It's, it's, um, it's a way to get out there and really do a kind of a quick uh, interaction with the fish population and get good numbers and then leave. You know, So you're not interacting with the fish uh, for more than you need to to have to get that kind of those numbers, that statistical understanding of what's going on out there. The fish are obviously negatively impacted from the electricity. It's not fun getting shocked. Anybody who's been accidentally shocked can tell you. The fish are generally stunned, but they generally recover very quickly, sometimes so quickly that it, they're too fast to net. So we got two people standing up on the bow of the boat. They're, they're standing there with long-handled dip nets. Their job is to be, you know, a Hawkeye standing up there on the bow and scooping fish as soon as they uh, get stunned by the electricity. So I told you that we were able to um, modulate the amount of energy going into the water. We use as little as possible to get the best result. So we stun the fish as little as possible, basically, and, and hurt them as little as possible. We scoop them quickly into a carefully aerated bucket in the boat. And we generally will shock for five minutes at a time. So five minutes of, of shocking down a, a, a lake shore or a riverbank. And then we stop. We will measure all those fish very quickly and weigh them and get them back in the water. So most of those fish swim away very strongly. 
Uh, I would easily compare it to angling where you hook, hook a fish, you carefully take care of it, get it back in the water. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. I had no clue how any of that worked. People always talk about it, but it's just... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's super interesting. I would... Honestly, at some point in my life, like to be a part of that process. I'll be the net guy, Austin. If you guys need volunteers, unpaid workers. Hey, we always we can always use some volunteers. Yeah, no, you just you just got to get your name on the list, man. Okay, okay. As far as cool critters that we've caught over the years, uh, there's one that really leaps out at me. We were shocking on Brushy Creek in Austin, which is very, very famous to a lot of uh, fly anglers, and I'm sure several of the people who listen to your show will recognize it, mm-hmm. up there in Round Rock. And we shocked up a 36-inch American eel. What? With three feet. I know. So this big female, which is the only thing it could have been, this enormous female American eel had climbed up above one dam, at least one, if not two, which means that she had waited for it to rain, got out on land, slithered up and over and into the creek. And so she had made this incredible journey upstream. And now we think that we caught her as she was headed back down, back out to the ocean. I don't even know what to say. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So, okay, so American eels then are saltwater, both salt and freshwater. But it's different right. than a freshwater eel. That's right. So okay. they, they will come up into freshwater to live out their lives. And then when it's time to spawn and die, they go back out into the ocean and spawn out there somewhere. We're, we're still, to this day, not even 100% sure where they go. Oh, wow. Okay. That is interesting. Yeah. In Brushy Creek of all places. Of all places. So we have freshwater eels in our river systems and lakes here near us, right, in the hill country in Austin. In San Antonio, but these like but three feet is just like massive, especially for oh yeah no okay. I will never see one that big in my life again. <laughs> That's crazy. Have you guys uh, shocked up any state record fish that uh, you're like oh that would easily be the state record? You know it's interesting. We so rarely shock up truly large fish. Uh, if we're t- for instance, if we're talking bass, mm-hmm. the largest bass we've ever shocked was on- I say only air quotes there friends, but <laughs> only eight pounds. And I have seen truly large bass that were near the boat, but skittered off before we could get them. So I don't know if there's like a, uh, kind of a, a size where they're not shocked well, or they're too strong and they get away because they feel us coming or what the deal is, but I can tell you that catching catching oversized fish, if it's not if it's a bass, it's it's generally not going to happen. We have shocked up some absolutely enormous red ears, um, which is always okay. cool. Yeah, and um, and I'm sure oh, you guys shock up invasives too, and you guys get a good idea about invasive species in a river system. That's probably very good data for you guys. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, yeah, a lot of the times those guys don't make it back in the water somehow. <laughs> somehow the uh a couple of them that come to mind are we we often catch tilapia oh uh, yeah. uh, i did want to make a note about catfish because those are kind of a, a special consideration so we were talking about making connecting that circuit and putting electricity out into the water you can do that 
the the traditional way and catch catfish, but if you put out kind of a low frequency signal of electricity into the water, it's much more effective at catching catfish um, simply because of uh, the way that they react to the electricity and, and they're kind of larger and lower in the water column. Um, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure how all of those factors come together, but I do know that uh, low pulse uh, electrofishing, we call it, is more uh, effective at catching catfish and it is really something to see uh, when you get, sometimes we'll do catfish roundup type scenarios where we're trying to catch a bunch of broodstock for a project, mm. a tagging survey, something like that. And you get four or five shock boats out on a lake using low pulse and catfish will come up to the surface and skitter away from you on the surface. <laughs> and it is really something to see. So it's not that they're susceptible to the shocking. It's that they're actually attracted to that low pulse. They, it's, I wish they were, <laughs> but it's that they're so sensitive, okay. their, their skin and their, um, their sensory organs are so in tune with the electricity in the water. They, they, that's part of how they hunt in that low light, low water, uh, sort of condition mm -hmm. that they like to hunt in, you know, flatheads they are out at night. Um, classic, right? Right. Well, these fish use electricity to hunt, so they'll move away from you quite a bit when you're coming through with a with a typical shock rig. But if you use the low pulse, you can uh, more easily capture them. Gotcha. So to get back into the stalking side of things, yeah. Um, what? How do you guys determine what fish go where? I know ultimately a lot of times they're posted on the TPWD website when you guys are going to stock and roughly how many fish or how many pounds of fish, how do you guys decide ultimately how many fish go where, why you're stocking that particular water system? It comes down to using the data that we were talking about earlier. So I was, I was mentioning the, uh, the vegetation surveys. Well, of course in the spring and winter, fall, spring, winter, we are doing the fish surveys. So we're out there, we're looking for, the populations, we're trying to get a good gauge of what's happening if there was any major swings, similar to what we mentioned with the vegetation earlier. We don't expect major swings. We expect kind of a, a slight deviation one way or the other as the populations sort of do their thing. They play out. There are very natural cyclical ups and downs to a lot of these populations that we have nothing to do with. We cannot interfere or help with. Uh, but for instance, um, if you are looking at a lake that during this last cold spell, it wiped out a bunch of the shad for whatever reason, we're using a hypothetical situation where the water got so cold that the shad bottomed out. Well, maybe you wouldn't go in there and stock a whole bunch of uh, hybrids or largemouth bass that year. Maybe you'd hold off and let the shad population kind of recover a little bit before maybe stocking next year after you've checked again. Because to all see those fish, you, you, because I, it sounds like what you're getting at is all those fish that you're about to stock are about to be food because there's no that's right. shad. Yeah. That's right. Okay. What, uh, what fish do you guys stock the most of? Ooh, uh, I think it's hybrids, hybrid striped bass. Okay. Um, 
And if, if not, then it's largemouth bass. Okay. Um, those are, those are kind of right up with each other in our per stocking percentage, I believe. Okay. And, and I see every now and then you guys are doing things like, um, what, like the paddlefish. I saw what, like a year or two ago, they were stocking paddlefish. Yeah. Occasionally there's these, these kind of special projects that uh -huh. come up like paddlefish and there are, you know, paddlefish are, uh, kind of in trouble across their range and Texas will kind of put its hand up and say, okay, well, we're going to, this is kind of our uh, contribution to the effort of keeping paddlefish populations healthier. So we're going to try to figure out how to spawn and successfully put into the wild uh, baby paddlefish. Gotcha. Okay. And I know also um, this year, everything with like the big freeze that happened in February. Yeah. You guys are focusing a lot on the saltwater as well, especially with speckled trout. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, saltwater stocking efforts uh, are done on a similar sort of strategy to the freshwater ones. We are just trying to keep track of what's going on out there, understand if it is something we can, in fact, impact, and then trying to act on those situations where we think we can make a difference. Okay. What is the process of raising a hatchery fish? Fun question. So we're <laughs> going to take a largemouth bass. Okay. Okay. So we've got. A bunch of Florida strain broodfish that we have chosen over time due to their fast growing and large size potential. We take those fish, we keep them in a hatchery facility. The hatchery facility where I that I work out of, I'm officed out of, has um, I, I think at least 50 ponds on it and they're all at least, um, let's see, 45 of those ponds are an acre and, and five of them are a quarter acre or something like that. Whoa. So, okay. so these are big facilities, yeah. But, yeah. but keep in mind that each fish only has a slice of that pie. So the brood, the, the big Florida brooders that I'm talking about are kept in a single pond or two, depending on how many we've got. And those fish are brought in uh, inside, literally inside, to large raceways, concrete raceways that are fed with fresh river water straight from the San Marcos River. And those fish are able to kind of acclimate to being in a non-natural environment, if you will, and they get used to having um, electronic lights over them, people walking past them, that sort of thing. And then come time to spawn, the hatchery personnel will put in specially designed mats that in onto the bottom of the concrete wasteway that give the bass spawning substrate. The bass will uh, self-select, so they will separate out according to natural choosing forces you know they they pick their mates and then the female bass will lay her eggs on the mat uh each mat is checked multiple times a day by hatchery personnel when they see that there's an egg mass on the mat they will pick up the mat and very carefully transport it to another kind of holding tank that has highly oxygenated water it's very temperature, climate controlled, you know, baby. They're, everybody's checking on that sucker to make sure that everything's good. Um, and then another mat is placed back 
where the, the old mat was. And basically we keep rolling through that cycle as more and more bass spawn until we have enough bass spawned to meet the criteria for how many bass we think we will need to stock out that year, which is based on the data that we collected out in the field the previous years. So it's that, that's how it kind of clicks together. The biologists are out there in the field. They're looking at the fish. They request from the hatchery, hey, we think we need X number of largemouth bass. And the hatchery says, cool, got you. We're going to make you know 50,000 largemouth bass for your lakes, and we're going to send them over there. Okay. So, so the um... – the like fry, right? That's what the baby bass, baby fish are called, right? Little fry. That's right. So the year they hatch, is that the same year they go out? Or are they held in those ponds for a year or two to kind of get a couple inches uh, long? Almost always they're sent out the same year that they're hatched. Okay. So there's a few different strategies there. You can send them when they're fry, which is when they're ultra tiny. So um, that's, that's one strategy, which is sort of the flood the market strategy, if you will. So put so many of them out there that the predators could never eat them all and see who lives. Right. Basically the next size up from that, the fingerling, which is approximately two, two and a half inches long. Mm -hmm. We, we will stock the fry out from the successful hatching from the mats that I was telling about. Mm -hmm. They go out into the pond and there's maybe 100,000 fry that are stocked into a pond. And then after X amount of time, usually a month or less, we carefully monitor them as they grow uh, and feed them so they don't eat each other as much. Um, <laughs> they will then be harvested and put out as that larger size, which uh -huh. hypothetically has a better survivor rate, but there are now less fish because they've been eating each other for a month. <laughs> right. Less fish. And it takes more time to get to that point. That's right. But they have a higher success rate of once you guys actually release them. Hypothetically. Yeah. Yeah. Hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, so once you guys are ready to stock them, what are some of the methods that y'all use to actually stock the fish? It's pretty typical to drain the pond down, which is a very interesting process to watch, but they carefully drain the pond down. All the water ends up in a, in a low point with the fish. The low point has been carefully designed to catch the water and the fish as it kind of pools down and keeps draining and draining and draining. And there's several layers of screens and various things to keep the little fish from washing out. And uh, somebody hops in there and literally carefully scoops them out with a net and we load them onto a truck after we get a uh, kind of a, an idea of an average weight. So we literally count them uh, and weigh them. So we'll do you know, 20 or 30 little fish. We'll weigh them, get an average, weigh them, get an average, do two or three rounds of that and say, okay. So using that calculation, we can do a mountain of little fish and using that weight, we can use division and say, okay, well, it's probably about this many. <laughs> so we will load up the fish into a specially designed fish hauling trailer, which has oxygen bottles and it's designed, it's insulated. It's basically a huge rolling Yeti. Um, <sighs> it's made out of aluminum. It's got uh, aerators that are hooked up to it and, it is um, 
capable of, of hauling lots of water and lots of fish. So with this hauling trailer, they're able to um, separate the fish into three different buckets, if you will, three different compartments, and you can literally count out how many you need, put them all in there, and then flush each one at a time if you need to do different areas or different water bodies or do them all at once and, uh, and get them into the water. Now, once you get to the lake as the driver with all these baby fish, first of all, you're checking as you drive. You stop and check, make sure everybody's okay a couple times on the way to the water. Once you get there, you have to do what's called tempering. When you temper, you very carefully pump a little water from the lake into your trailer to where eventually the trailer water matches the temperature and alkalinity of the lake. So you don't shock the fish and kill them all because I tell you what, it's really depressing to have 10,000 baby bass just floating at the boat ramp where anybody can see them and you worked so hard on them only to have them die because you put them in too soon. Mm. So it's a, it's a delicate process. You know, these baby fish are, are pretty delicate and, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely the most difficult part of the process that you have to be patient for is tempering them when you get there. Once you get them in the water, you know, they're in God's hands at that point. Yeah. Yeah. How long does the tempering uh, process uh, take? Very dependent. Uh-huh. I have... Uh, a little bit of experience with this particular aspect of it. I have sat at a lake. I sat at Amistad for four hours once waiting for the lake water to temper my trailer. Oh my God. Um, it's even worse when we're talking about taking redfish. Yeah, because Amistad is one of the few lakes Calaveras. where they stock redfish. Yeah, Calaveras is. Calaveras, yeah. San Antonio. And Browning. Yeah. Yep. Um, and when you're taking those saltwater fish and putting them into freshwater, it's even more arduous. You're there forever. Oh, I bet. I can't imagine. And I heard those, those fish can't re- reproduce in freshwater, can they? That's correct. To so, my knowledge, they cannot. So the the whole reason for putting the redfish in those lakes is pure, like, put and take for people to fish and take those fish home. That's correct. That's okay. correct. Okay. Um, cool. Do you guys have any, before I want to talk to you about, uh, the casting stuff, For but sure. do y'all, uh, Zach or Cliff, do y'all have any questions about y'all want to ask Austin before we transition? No, I could talk about this. I think this is like the most interesting thing, yeah. but I definitely want to get to, uh, to casting. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. We could, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> Absolutely. We may just need to go experience it I as a group. So. Yeah. Um, so, Austin, will you um, – actually, one question before we transition to fly casting. How sure. did you get into, um, you know, your field, and how did you get into working with Texas Parks and Wildlife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that. So, when we're, when we're talking about little baby Austin out there in the world wondering what he wants to be, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a marine biologist by the time I was in second grade. <laughs> So I was not one of these people who struggled with, oh my gosh, what do I do with my life? Um, I very, very early on knew that I loved fish, knew that I loved fishing, and knew that I wanted to do something along those lines. Um, I ended up with a range and wildlife management degree from Texas A&M Kingsville, 
And you said, Austin, what? Wait, I thought you said fish. Well, I did a, um, a couple of summer internships with some fisheries grad students. And we worked something like 120 hour weeks for a while. And unsurprisingly, I completely burned out on fisheries work for a while mm. and wanted to do anything other than that. Um, it completely took away my love of fishing, it, which scared me because that's like a huge part of my identity. But when I was going to college at Kingsville, I, I got that all back. I was able to find a better balance. And frankly, uh, if we're talking about the difference between wildlife jobs and fisheries jobs, at that time, there just weren't a lot of wildlife jobs available. So I went with what there was, and that was fisheries. Very cool. Um, awesome. Will you tell us about um, your, your certified casting instructor with, the, uh, with FFI, That's formerly IFFF? <laughs> That's correct. Which is... <laughs> Uh, it's Fly Fishers International now. That's correct. And it used to be International Federation of Fly Fishers. And before that, it was the Federation of Fly Fishers. So the triple F. Yeah. <laughs> so FFI, you're a certified casting instructor. Will you talk us through your process of getting certified? And I would like. I think myself, I'm very interested in getting certified. Maybe some of our other listeners are. Would you kind of talk about what made you decide to get certified and then what that process looks like? Because I know it's not an easy process to actually get certified. Yeah, that's right. And it's frankly, it's tough to it's tough to have mentors or anybody who's actually done it. So I'm, I'm glad to be that person for somebody. So hopefully, you know, there's there's a few listeners out there who can get some uh, good help off of this conversation. But so just diving right in, for me, becoming certified was uh, kind of an inevitability. So I was, at the time, I was living in Corpus Christi, I was fishing a ton, and I was also part of a fly fishing club down there, and that club gave me the opportunity to teach. So I was teaching a lot of fly casting and just newcomers to fly fishing in general, and I loved it, and I just really wanted to pursue that part of, uh, of fishing, uh, the, the teaching, the bringing others into the sport aspect. And for me at that time, I was 21, 22. So I was a baby, right? And it was very difficult to, to get people to pay attention to what I had to say in a lot of scenarios. So the stereotypical fly angler is a little older, a little, a little white, and uh, maybe a little crunchy. So when, at, especially at that time, it seemed like um, it's, it's swung a lot younger in recent years, and I love that. I love getting seeing all the younger people getting into it, and uh, well, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But, but for me at that time, it becoming certified was kind of twofold. One, proving to myself that I was capable and that I was as good as I, I thought I could be. And two was being able to take that certification and uh, legitimize myself to others 
who might not believe that this kid had anything worth listening to. Well, and it is legitimate. I mean, I know how hard that certification is to get. You can't just be have been fly fishing for a couple of years and be like, I'm going to go take this test and pass it. And I'm going to be a certified casting instructor. It takes dedicated time and effort to actually get the certification. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's the way they designed it. You know, it wouldn't be any good as a, as a certification if just anybody could walk in and, and complete it. You, it's just like uh, any other cert- certificate that you get, um, you should need to earn it, mm-hmm. in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. And that is, that is definitely the, the path that FFI has taken when designing this test. Um, they have also, fortunately for us, gone way out of their way now to be helpful with the amount of information that's out there in order to make sure that um, prospective certified casting instructors are able to actually uh, get out there and find the information they need in order to pass. So that was not the case necessarily when I was testing for Mm. it. I got... I got certified back in 2011, so it's been a little while, but um, they've really only streamlined and improved the process since then, so that's the good news. Um, There is also, if you go onto the FFI website and you poke around, you can look up different uh, casting um, resources, and you can find step-by-step the entire test and look at the tasks that they will ask you to do, one, two, three, four, and so on. Mm. And you can say to yourself, okay, well, there it is. Let's see if I can go do it. And you can, you can interact with that test in simply a practice fashion. You do not have to be wanting to go for a CI at all. You can just use it as practice, or you could, there's um, the uh, casting skills uh, set of certifications that they've put out recently that offer you, anybody, a chance to test yourself um, and work on your skills. And they have three different levels, bronze, silver, gold. And if you're able to just breeze through the gold level of challenge, then you're a good CI candidate, at least from the skill standpoint. Okay. Um, now there's a master certified casting instructor. Um, I know one very well, Steve Holland said. I don't know yes. if you know Steve. He's I do. probably He's awesome. the nicest guy I've ever met. Unfortunately, I don't live very close to him, or else I'd be fishing with him all the time. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you go see him, just pick me up on the way by. We'll go fish with okay, him. Okay, let's let's do it. We'll call it a practice session, but we yes. both know we we both know what's going on. Go um, hammer some stripers. Yeah. <laughs> I I have fished with him one time, and we just hammered the stripers. Um, it believe. was awesome. Um, is is the master certified casting instructor something that uh, a goal of yours to achieve? Absolutely. Absolutely. For, for all the same reasons that we kind of talked about, um, teaching. So let me back up. If you want to become a CI, don't do it 
to just prove yourself worthy of carrying that title around. It's me, the sun-soaked tropical hotel looking for a companion who enjoys short walks to sandy beaches and exotic bird sightings. Must love a spontaneous voyage on a privately owned catamaran. My strengths include ocean and jungle views, your choice, plus the occasional ukulele serenade. My only weakness? You'll never want to leave me. Download the Hotels app to find me. You're perfect somewhere. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to watch, but Cox Contour TV helps make that decision easier. Enjoy live TV, on-demand programs, DVR recordings, and music all in one place. And only with the sound of your voice with the Contour Voice Remote. Plus, catch the golf and basketball action you've been waiting for on the Contour Sports app. Learn more at coxcox.com slash contour. If you want to become a certified casting instructor, or a certified instructor rather, you need to love teaching people. You need to be one of those people who really enjoys that outreach aspect that I was talking about earlier. Because if you're not, you're just making the rest of us look bad. So please just go cast beautifully by yourself somewhere um, or show off to your friends or whatever. But honestly, if, if you just wanted to put that quill in your hat and then not teach, like what, what, why are you, don't, don't do it. It's not worth the time and effort and money because it's really hard to do. And I know that that's just going to set some people's mind that they absolutely have to do it. And I respect that. I respect that. I, I'm down with setting hard goals and accomplishing them. But this is absolutely something that you need to be a teacher in order to really get the most out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. For and, myself. And you think that, I mean, how many master certified casting instructors are in Texas? Like two or three? Yeah, Maybe. Yeah, and so how many CIs are there? Do you know? I do not. When I was certified, when I was certified, I think there were less. There was around a thousand worldwide. Something. Oh like wow! That. Okay, I didn't know there was that. I, there's got to be that way more now because you did it in two thousand. There's there's way more now. Yeah. Okay. There's way okay. more now. Yeah. Um, but I was one of the youngest, and absolutely one of the youngest in Texas. I think yeah. there was one who was younger than me. Yeah, no, for um, sure. I just know like there's like two, three master certified, and I I've looked at the test and the requirements, and yeah, you're not well, what you have to be able to do and be able to teach is just so okay. Insane. So wh- like you keep saying like the test. So is it? It's a physical test. Like you actually have to go out and do these casts. And is there a written component to it as well, or is it just? I, and Austin, correct me if I'm wrong. There's three components. There's a teaching component. You okay. have to be able to prove that you can teach okay. casting instruction. Uh-huh. There's an abilities component where you have to prove your abilities at casting. Mm-hmm. And then there's like That's a knowledge right. component where you just have to prove that you have the knowledge of, of casting. casting. That's right. So that, so here's how it goes. They they sit you down in a the classroom. They And this is for the CI, to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, they sit you down in the classroom. You go over uh, some interesting history, you chat, you do a written component, which you should study for ahead of time, but it's not super critical. Uh, It sort of just tests your general knowledge. Then they take you out in the field and they run you through the exercises that are outlined in the test. 
that is generally specifically for watching your form, watching you how you do everything, making sure that you're calm, you're competent, you're precise, that you are very, very good at what you're doing. Then here's the, here's the tricky part. So that's part one. Part two is the actual instruction aspect. So you then are teaching these MCIs. You're not teaching them anything. You're just trying to show them that you're a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And they will ask you to perform tasks. They will ask stupid questions and you need to very carefully correct them or set them straight or whatever. They are not trying to trip you up, but they are asking you to be very good at understanding and explaining exactly what's going on. So you're kind of playing the part of like if you were a student. Mm-hmm. Right, Absolutely. Kind of that role. Okay. Absolutely. And that is the part that most people fail. Yeah. Mm. I can see that because right. you, can, you can take knowledge, you can learn the cast, but that's something that it's hard to study for and get. You, well, you have to be a people person. You have to be confident in your answers. Right. You have to have seen these things before and know how to respond to them. So, absolutely. Yeah, and, absolutely. They will, and they will challenge you. They will challenge you on, a, on something. They'll be like, oh, well, what about X? And you have to be like, well, that's true, but... And you have to be able to support your answer. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so uh, are you currently working towards your MCI? So I tested for my MCI back March 2020 before the world trial part. Uh-huh. Okay. And let me tell you, gentlemen and ladies out there in the audience, wow, that is hard. So as someone who passed the CI the first time, I was expecting to at least get a, have a good run at the MCI. Uh-huh. I spent a lot of time preparing for it, four or five months. They recommend that you spend at least a year. Uh, and they recommend that you have a MCI for a mentor who works with you during that entire year. It turns out that they're not kidding. (laughs) It is incredibly demanding. When I was tested, there were six MCIs standing around watching me from every angle. And what they ask of you is essentially perfection. They do that because the MCI is the flagship of their certification program. It's a PhD, and they don't want just anybody out there wandering around with that. Mm -hmm. Um, They want you to prove it. They want you to earn it and own it. Yeah. Like, in their mind, there is nothing better. Like, you cannot be better at casting. I would say no, Yeah, knowing what I know about it. Once you achieve that. So there's two levels. There's MCI level one and MCI level two. Uh Oh, I didn't know that. Is that a newer thing, or is that always That is a newer thing. Okay. And uh, MCI level two is able to test. So they're the ones that are going around giving the CI tests and the MCI tests. Mm. So they're the ones when you said the MCs were... The level uh, two is the higher level. That's correct. Okay. And they were the ones who were watching you during your your tests. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, and I know too, just having kind of looked at it, uh, you know, they add all like the normal casting functions that you would see, but then they throw in like the single hand spay. That's right. And a lot of things that we don't really techniques that you and I would not really use, really use that often. If not, that's where I struggled. Absolutely. And that's where I struggled because 
you know, simply, simply put, we don't, we don't do that stuff. Right. I mean, not with any sort of regularity. They're like the so specialty it was cast. Very good. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying they're like the specialty cast that. You, yeah. You say. Yeah. Well, and, and once you, I can see where they're coming from because once you understand the fly cast in a, in a broader, have a broader understanding and, and understand it more fully, you do introduce those things into your fishing as someone who came to casting from fishing, there are aspects of my game that are more weak when it comes to casting because of that, because I'm an angler first, a caster second. There are aspects of my angling game that are much more strong than some of those people who spend all their time casting rather than fishing. Does that make sense? So are there some people who go for this certification and they're casting forward? Like they might never even like fish that often, but they're like, I want to know the art of casting. And that's where they spend their time on. Okay. Really? I wouldn't, what what would you say the ratio is? It's like more people who fish first or more people who who cast first. first? It's, it's hard for me. It's hard to say. Mm. I think that there are some people because you can cast anytime. Right. Right. Yeah, um, fishing requires more resources and more stuff. Right. So I think that honestly, some people start f- by fishing and then kind of transition to more casting mm-hmm. later in life. It's not clear to me exactly. Right. But I do know that the obstacles that they put in front of you as an MCI are challenging in a way that asks you to improve your game tremendously Mm -hmm. from being a CI to an MCI. And I think that is worthwhile. Um, I also think that they should ask you to up your teaching game just as much. And I'm not entirely sure that that's uh, currently the way it is, but I think that that's their goal. Right. So, um, Let's get to some practical stuff for our listeners, Austin. Yeah. What are the most common casting mistakes that you see? Just average across the board, somebody's listening, they might have a little kink in their cast or something. What sure. are the more common mistakes you see and some fixes for those mistakes? It sort of shifts over time, right? So the beginner casters, they all tend to kind of crank the wrist way back and way forward and you get this sort of windshield wiper. Yeah. Casting in this big rainbow arc or this windshield wiper type formation because our brain tricks us, right? It, it says, okay, I'm throwing something. I need to crank my arm way back and bring it way forward because I know that this line is super light and I need to throw it. Well, it turns out that that is false because now you're using this nine foot lever to make the line move. So you don't need to bring it all the way back and all the way forward. And kind of learning that is, is a struggle at first because simply we're not built to throw things with levers. We're built to throw things with our hands. So that is a struggle at first. Your brain is tripping over itself, trying to adjust the way your body's moving. Um, so that's with beginners and then moving to kind of an intermediate caster, I would say that, uh, hitting the cast with too much strength. So punchy casting, 
uh, applying too much power too soon or too much power overall is the most common. So you end up with tailing loops. You end up with uh, casts that splash real hard down. Um, you end up not forming good loops, so you just slam the rod tip straight down and the line also straightens out in front of you, which is, you know, that's that's fishing. You're catching fish, and that's that's okay. But if you really want to be good at this thing, you need to have control over the loop in the air. So that's that's kind of the step. So you go from being able to move line in the air as a beginner, and that's your that's kind of your success point. And then you go to an intermediate, and then you need to be able to, to competently control the line in the air and then have it land how you want it to land. That's kind of the next step. And then advanced casting, you need to have utter control over the line in the air, be able to throw any size loop that you want and have it land pretty much exactly where you want it whenever you want it. Mm. And so, okay, so you said that's kind of like the beginning intermediate. What do you notice as people get older or have been doing it a long time? What kind of mistakes are they, do they kind of? Yeah, so, so advanced casters are some of my favorite to kind of help because as, as a caster who myself, it's very hard to find someone to help me at this stage, right? Um, you were talking about Steve Holland said some of the MCIs, those are the guys that I need to go to. And they're like five hours away. Like yeah. I, I can't <laughs> afford to go up there all the time, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so the, the advanced casters can really get a lot out of some good casting sessions because a, the camaraderie, which is obviously a big part of fly fishing in general. And, and one of the reasons that we love it so much. Right. Um, but B, because it is so rare to have uh, a group of guys or girls that can stand around and study each other's cast competently, fully understanding what they're seeing and fully able to offer high quality advice to advance that person's casting. So the advanced casters will often, A, they'll still be hitting it too hard. They'll be using too much energy. They can often back off a lot, especially on the forward cast. Mm-hmm and still deliver the the loop very well. Um, another thing that will happen is that they will develop backcast bad habits where they sweep the line kind of out to the side on a backcast. That appears in the beginners and intermediate casters as well, but it kind of comes to a head with the advanced casters because now that's interfering with their ability to put the fly exactly where they want it because it's it manifests in the forward cast. This thing that you do on the back cast manifests itself in the forward cast, and that can really frustrate people because they don't know what's going on. Why is it doing that? Why is it doing that? It's kicking left every time. Well, it's because on your back cast, you're picking up and going right. And so if you don't have someone standing there to watch and see what's going on, that can really just drive you crazy. Uh, another thing that advanced casters do is they will introduce the double haul and they won't get the timing right or they will lean on the double haul too much and they will forget how to throw and form very high quality loops and they will use the double haul as a crutch. Oh, yeah, that makes Mm. sense. I know exactly what you're talking about with the picking up on the right-hand side too because I know you just kind of get, not lazy, but like you just go out there, you're doing some creek fishing or whatever. And you're just That's like, right. Yeah, well, I don't care if it's, you know, three well, feet off the left of where I was really aiming. It's still going to catch a fish. Well, Zach got accused on YouTube of being uh, fly casting mistakes 101. I'm at least a 201. <laughs> at least 201, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
I was catching fish. Okay. So. Yeah. That's I, right. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, a good thing to do. A good thing to mention too, is like, if you're just wanting to go out and have fun and catch fish, all this fancy stuff, you know, may not matter to you as much, but if you want to become a good fly caster, I think this is all good things to take in mind. Um, Austin, will you transition to how you started your, uh, fly casting service is called elevate fly casting where you take people out and you will help them become better casters. Um, eventually you're going to help me get my CI, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. when we can make that happen. But will you talk about how you started elevate fly casting and then what you do now and how your business operates? Sure. Yeah. So this was sort of an elevate fly casting came out of a, a natural extension of my love of teaching, frankly. Um, when it comes to fishing, um, there's a lot of the joy that I can get out of, um, out of fishing that comes from helping other people catch fish. Right. So I've caught, I've, I'm, I'm well down the road in my fishing career. I've spent a ton of time fishing. I've got a ton of fish. My joy often now comes from getting people and helping them with that process. So fly fishing is particularly intimidating for a lot of reasons. It can be very expensive. It can be very difficult. It can be difficult to find people to, to go with. It can, you know, it's just, it can be difficult. However, I'm here to help you with all of that. So that's kind of my goal. My, you know, my college years were interspersed with years of literally fishing my brains out on the Texas coast, like living in my car, fishing every day, fish bum. Mm -hmm. And I am proud of it. <laughs> and I don't regret it one bit. Uh, it might've took me six years to graduate, but Hey, that's just part of who I am. And I bring that experience to each and every casting session. And I can cut a decade off of your learning curve. If you come hang out with me and we talk about your cast and I can see things in your cast and help you see them. Now, ultimately that's, that's what I bring to the table. I know for me, you know, I, when I was working at Orvis, I did a lot of casting lessons and did a lot of teaching classes. And I think in the class setting, you don't get that one-on-one -on -one time that you do with a casting lesson. We're trying to ram through some basics yeah, in an hour so with 20 people in a class and there's so true. two volunteers helping me and we're doing the best we can. I think that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, approach like you're talking about, which I do occasionally now, but I don't have the time that I used to do to have those is, is just really important and people can gain, you know, like you said, cut a decade off your, your learning curve because you have someone there that's watching you and you've been making the same mistake for, you know, two years and you can overcome that through, uh, through a casting lesson. Um, yeah. you're, you said you're in San Marcos. I'm, I work in San Marcos, but I'm in South Austin. Okay. And so, and you do casting lessons on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays evenings. Most often. That's okay. right. That's okay. Right. And so if people want to do a casting lesson with you, um, that's, that's kind of your schedule for the most part. That's right. And then where do y'all do the lessons at? Uh, so we've, I've got uh, a, kind of a, a small handful of parks that I will go to. Um, most familiar to people in the Austin area would probably be Lake Mueller. Um, and it's, it's a big park complex and it's got a, a small 
well, small lake, big pond on, on site there. And so we can cast on the grass, we can cast on the water, we can talk and, and relax in the shade, that sort of thing. It's just a very easy access. Um, so that's the sort of place that, that I like to meet up. And uh, I've got, I do two hour sessions and that's, I've found that that's kind of the Goldilocks zone. So you're, you're going to be too tired if, and fatigued if we go longer than that, but you, you know, you won't get as much out of it if we don't go that long. So that's kind of the, that's my goal okay. is, to, is to provide as much uh, good feedback for you while you're fresh and strong as possible. And then um, do you give uh, your students homework or anything to take home? Oh, absolutely. Them? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't, you, you're on team Austin after we're done. <laughs> so, so I can't, I can't have you out there in the world, not knowing what's going on. We're, we're all in this together. So yeah, they, they get homework, they get stuff they can work on at home. They get drills, you know, all the drill, almost all the drills that I use during the practice are things that they can replicate at home. I teach them exactly how to set everything up and how to use them. And, uh, you know, frankly, the most important aspect, um, of those drills is that they're fun. This is not a monotonous process mm-hmm. that we're, that we're doing here. This is the, everything that I do. Like I said, I'm a, I'm an angler first. Everything I do is related to catching the dang fish. And I think sometimes some casting instructors forget that that's really what we're in this for. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Do you care to share your rates on the podcast? Uh, sure. Yeah. Right now, um, as of August 25th, 2021, um, I'm doing a two hour session, single person for $80. And if you can bring a similarly skilled partner, um, then we can do a, a partner session where it's $120 for the two of you kind of save you a little money and get that, uh, motivation and camaraderie to, uh, to improve together. Um, and then, as far as, you know, rods vary a lot. You know, there's glass rods that are super slow. There's super stiff action rods that are that are out now. Do you have a – thanks for that, Cliff. Uh, do you have a uh, preference on, you know, if someone was listening and like, I want a good casting rod, do you have a preference or opinion on that? Absolutely. So you mentioned the two extremes. You've got mm-hmm. fiberglass rods, very slow. You've got the super high-end graphite rods that are designed for the top 2% of casters in the world. And then you've got the Goldilocks zone kind of in the middle. And that's definitely where I recommend people stick. You know, you've got what we call medium action or medium slow rods. And what that means is it's not, uh, it's not, going to ask a lot out of you as far as you're going to need to really slow down and be conscious of the cast if you're casting a fiberglass rod or you're going to need to be very quick and very powerful with your movements if you're throwing the super stiff end of the rod so uh something that's more caster friendly would be something like uh a tfo professional series two or similar rods that are um sort of in the, in the middle. Okay. Cool. Austin. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to, that you wanted to mention about either TPWD hatchery or about fly casting? Uh, I will just say that, um, one of the ways that I try to give back to the community is by posting a lot of, uh, 
casting tips and real live student experiences mm-hmm. on my Instagram. Yep, you do. It's, um, you do. Uh, I follow you and I check in all the time on your stories and stuff. And I think you pose a lot of questions like, hey, what's wrong with this cast? What are you guys seeing? And I'm sure you probably get some messages back um, Absolutely, yeah. from people. And, and that sounds very responsive. Austin, what is your, your Instagram handle? It is Elevate Flycasting. Perfect. And, you know, when when I do that, it's it's not, you know, that that's for you. That's for you guys and and especially uh, young CIs who are who, or want to be CIs because that is the language that they're going to ask you to speak mm. when you go for your tests. So this is kind of my dog whistle to all want to be CIs out there. Hey, you know, let's start a conversation. What do you see with this cast? What is going on with this? And uh, and that's one of my ways that I give back to the community because, like I said, it's hard to find people to have those conversations with. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Um, Austin, man, we really appreciate you coming on. This yeah. was great, and I think we could have talked as, uh, if probably for another hour about <laughs> TPWD study yeah. techniques. For sure, yeah, uh, <laughs> for sure. Yes. And we could have a very long conversation about fly casting yeah i think fly casting is hard to uh, describe over an audio format yeah um for sure as well but um man we really appreciate you coming on definitely oh yeah no i'm i'm glad glad to be here guys and uh and like i said i just hope i help somebody out and anybody who wants to get a hold of me please reach out um either uh on instagram is always a great spot to find me and uh yeah i look forward to chatting with anybody who reaches out so your Instagram again is Elevate Flycasting. We'll put it in the show notes. Yep. And then do you have a website? I do. Yep. Elevateflycasting.com. Easy. Yep. That's easy. Yep. And elevateflycasting at gmail.com. So there you go. Perfect. All in one spot. <laughs> Perfect. It makes it easy every time. Perfect. And we decided earlier that this episode was coming out on September sixth. Uh the sixth or seventh. Whatever whatever the sixth or the seventh. Whatever that is. The sixth or the seventh. Is. Which is still b- before our uh hunt with us event, Cliff. Um, before we end, would you fill us in on the hunt with us, the, the details, hunt with us yes. and the details? It's going to be like a week before, or even just it's a couple be, days. When before. you're listening, it's going to be this upcoming Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. It's going to be September 11th. The mo- it's going to be the morning of September 11th. Uh, it's going to be at the Somerset Dove Field. Um, which is just south of San Antonio, but it's still inside the loop of 1604, so it is central zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I plan on getting there before first light to get everything set up. So if you're interested, just contact me via Instagram or whatever to get your name on the list so I can kind of get a gauge of who's all going to be there. And we will have a Facebook event set up we will. as well. We would kind of like to gauge numbers. Uh, um, important things, though, must have a hunting license. You must have a valid hunting license. Yep. Must have the valid APH for this year. Which is, APH stands for? The Annual Public Lands Permit, Yep. Um, which is an additional $48 on top of your hunting license for the year. Uh, must be able to provide your own gun and your own ammunition. Yep. Um, and, the, I, and the place is big, so we'll get out there. We'll spread, spread out. You know. Yeah, we'll have decoys. You guys don't have to worry about that. Yeah. I have decoys. I even bought uh, an extra set of some stuff that I've never used before 
for decoys for us. Nice. And then also we're going to do a cleanup after the fact. As yes, well. yeah, and I will have trash bags for that. So make sure to bring your gun, your ammo, plenty of water, any snacks you may need. Yep. And then this is unofficial, but we'll probably go eat somewhere as a group after? Probably, probably. more than likely. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm expecting but get there before first light for sure. Uh, go till about 10, 30, 11 o'clock as far as hunting goes, unless it just starts to die slow down. down and die. And then we'll kind of do a cleanup of our area. We'll walk the field and clean up other people's areas, just looking for shot shells and stuff, keeping the farmer happy. And we will go probably eat afterwards. Yep. Call All it right. a day. That's it. Cool. Well, Austin, thanks again uh, for coming on. And uh, we will see you guys in the field or on the water. Bye.